stayed there. And, you know, they, it was like a dynasty for us. <laughs> so it, it, every, everybody knew Pinyan was a, was a football town because of the Collins family. And so uh, it, it was pretty cool growing up in, in that little small town. Oh, that's great. When, when did you know that you were going to be in the NFL? When did you decide that was going to happen? <laughs> uh, okay, so I think I was like nine years old. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, uh, I go to my mom. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing fantastic, Neil. How are you? Good, good for your Boston fans, especially, you know, your business located in the Boston region. They got to be a huge fan of our guest today. So New England Patriots all-star legend, Tony Collins. Tony, thanks for stopping by, man. And how about when you were part of the 80 run, you never thought that there'd be this dynasty with the Patriots, right? Did you ever think that, you know, going through working the way you work to get to the certain point, which is the Super Bowl, and then later on see the dynasty, which the Patriots end up creating? I mean, it was it was a lot of fun watching it. I tell you, uh, watching Brady do his thing. Um, you know, it, it. I mean, it. you never know what, what's going to happen. And uh, the, the, the years that I was there, uh, my my rookie season, we were two and 14. So we. <laughs> And so, and and then in you know my my third fourth year make it to the Super Bowl. So um, a lot of people don't know that we were the first New England Patriot team to go to a Super Bowl. But uh, it, it's just incredible to see the dynasty that it is, and hopefully we can get it back running again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, so that, that's amazing. Yeah, so <laughs> so Greg, you will start out, Greg, with just finding out. Do you always want to be a football player, Tony? Is that something growing up you want to be a football player? Oh, uh, man. So I'm from a, b- a big family. I don't know if you know how, how many. Uh, I'm from a family of 16. And so oh, wow. I, I have nine nine brothers. There was nine boys and seven girls. And all the boys, we all played sports. My father uh, actually uh, played in the Negro League. So we all played baseball. Uh, we all played football. We all played basketball. But our, our, our main uh, sport was football. And so every everybody in the family played football. And, uh, grew up in a, a small town in upstate New York. <laughs> I, I'll tell you how I got there later. So what but, small uh, town in upstate New York? Because my dad grew up in Scroon Lake. Uh, Pinyan, outside of Rochester. Okay. On Cuca <laughs> Lake. It's about, it's about, a, it's about an hour, uh, hour south of Rochester, New York. Okay. Yeah, so that's where I grew up at. And, uh, we just just created a kind of a, a little small 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 town uh so we were number one uh, uh state champion small school uh my senior year but it, it was even before that my brothers played there and you know they it was like a dynasty for us <laughs> so it, it, every, everybody knew Pinyan was a was a football town because of the Collins family and so uh uh, it, it was pretty cool growing up in, in that little small town. Oh, that's great. When, when did you know that you were going to be in the NFL? When did you decide that was going to happen? <laughs> uh, okay, so I think I was like nine years old. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I uh, I go to my mom and I tell my mom, and I, I tell this to, uh, I, I used to tell to a lot of kids, I, I don't speak as much as I used to. Um, your words have power. 
And so I went to my mom and I told my mom, I said, I said, mom, I am going to play in the NFL at nine years old. And, uh, and my mom said, son, you can do anything you want to do if you put your mind to it. And from that moment on, man, I, I, it's hard to, to explain how to make somebody believe it. I knew at nine years old that I was going to play in the NFL because my mom said I could do it. <laughs> See, Tony, that's sometimes the only thing we need is somebody to be behind us believing in us. Yes, that's, that's it. It's so if you don't have people believing in, in you, you kind of really, that's the big thing. It's so much mindset when you have talent because if people are telling you, yeah, you can't. I remember when I was a professional wrestler and because I was a big guy, I wasn't, you know, as well polished in the ring, but I had a good size and everything. The, the guys would just say, yeah, you're never going to go to the big time and all these right, different right, things. Right. And you listen to these naysayers i came close to the wwe i wrestled once in the wwe against crush and savia vega but i never you know reached the pinnacle went overseas but i allow people's at my young age mindset hearing this how much are you are you glad you had people around you that supported you because you see athletes today that if they didn't have that support you wouldn't get to where you are uh, it was it was tremendous for me. And see, here here's the thing about me. I I had my older brothers. Uh, I was I was number seven out of the out of the nine boys. And so I had a lot of older brothers to look up to, and and they all play football. Actually, I wasn't the best football player out of that, come out of that, out of them boys. <laughs> so uh, I had a brother who started freshman on varsity. No one ever starts freshman in Pinyan on varsity. So he did. And so and here's the, here's the key to that to that thing for me. Uh, so my my older brother started on varsity. His name was Morris. His freshman year in high school, and so that was my goal, man. You know, that was all I wanted to do is make sure I start on varsity my freshman year, like my brother Morris. And uh, I didn't make the team. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't make varsity. And uh, I know you hear the Michael Jordan story, but it, it was just like that. I I worked my butt off, man. I was so disappointed, and I never want I never wanted to feel that way again. And so I I just I, I was I was really a fanatic. Um, I'm to be totally honest with you. I took it to another level. <laughs> I used to run hills. I used to run stadium steps. <laughs> I'm I'm in the ninth grade, man. Everybody think I'm crazy, <laughs> but uh, I just took it to a whole nother level and. Uh, my my sophomore year, I went out for the team, and, and of course, I made it. And uh, the rest is history. For yeah, you know. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, and what was the what was the next stop after high school? What what happened next? Actually, we went to uh, East Carolina University. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy how I got to East Carolina University. So my uh, senior year in high school, you you get five official visits, and so. Um, uh, I had visited Syracuse, uh, schools close to close to the area where I can drive to, and I, and I got a visit to the University of Florida. So I'm I'm in upstate New York. So now I get a chance to go to University of Florida on a visit, and I'm really excited. Now you got to also understand, I've never been on an airplane before. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're from a family of sixteen, you don't travel on airplanes a lot. So. Uh, I've never been on an airplane before, and I was so excited about getting on this airplane and going and visit the University of Florida. Uh, 
got on the airplane, got down there, man. Everything was just perfect. Um, ping and ca- Back to the Neil Haley show and my guest today. And, you know, it's really exciting. I was talking locally to my local TV station again in Pittsburgh. Uh, Shout out to Pittsburgh. This is an event that's part of our Lending Hearts thing because I'm going to be honored to really bring awareness to what this event brings. So tell us a little bit more about the event. Well, uh, it is actually two days. Uh, The first day is at the home of actress, uh, artist, philanthropist Jane Seymour. And uh, that'll be a more uh, private, intimate gathering is my understanding. And on Saturday the 20th is the the main gala itself at the Calamagus Ranch in the Malibu Mountains. So um, that will be a, a really wonderful event that we'll have the opportunity to share more about what we're doing and and really how our mission fits in with the, the mission of the Open Hearts Foundation. So let's learn a bit about the Open Hearts Foundation because I'm intrigued by it because, you know, what you're doing with cancer patients is phenomenal. And I guess it, it's interesting you talk about lending hearts, you're lending hearts. Well, how, what does the Opens Hearts Foundation do? I know it's a hearts, hearts, who would have yeah. thought? But uh, actress Jane Seymour, I, I, I know I won't be able to paraphrase it well enough, but it was the inspiration of her mother. 
And pretty much what she would say was when you're faced with adversity, you, um, you everybody's faced with something and you open your heart up to them and uh, show your support. And, um, you know, everybody's in a time of need at some point. And, and how can we help others through through that adversity that they're experiencing? And it really does fit in with lending hearts with this time of need and beyond. How can we be there for you. And in our case, we, we lend our hearts to you and, and we're there to uh, provide that emotional and social support. So it's almost like you're aligned with the same mission almost in a way. Well, who would have ever thought? <laughs> I, hers is, of course, much more broad and, and she helps uh, so many wonderful causes and and groups and, uh, and we're on the oncology side of things. But when our two organizations came together and, and really saw it, it just... It made so much sense. It definitely seems like it makes sense in, in so many ways. And so they're helping. What types of causes do they help? They're, they're uh, they've they really opened up an emergency relief campaign during COVID, where they were helping so many organizations from food banks and other uh, needs that were uh, a lot in the California region. I, I think maybe we were the furthest reaching one being based in Pittsburgh and, um, and, and spreading their opportunity to help so many during that time. And now they're, they're going back to how their foundation and their gala in particular were based. And, and so they're, um, they're, they're staying on less of the emergency relief, I understand, and more on the, the grants and the mission in providing support in that way, because her gala was always a means of supporting different organizations through uh, various individuals out there that she was aware of. And that's in that, and that's whatever different ones. And did they ever say how they found you? Do you have a story about that? How they were? There, able to... there is a little bit of a story. It's uh, you know, it's that's, always... a, that's the Pittsburgh thing. We got to have a story. Come on. There... <laughs> There always is a story. She came to my understanding of how we were connected was she came to Pittsburgh visiting and she went to tour the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, where Andy Warhol was from. And uh, over the years, uh, I've developed a wonderful relationship with the, the Warhola who was Andy's uh, actual last name family. Donald Warhola is um, a part of the museum. The, the Andy Warhol Foundation has the, the family seat. And, and so as he was touring them, he, he brought up, hey, do you know Basel with Lending Hearts? And, and it kind of just was there. And he had told me at the time, he said, well, if you ever hear from these folks, and many months had gone by and then out of the blue, um, things started coming up like that was into the next year. So it was, it's funny how things come about. So, uh, yes, thanks to Donald. You have to go ahead and plant a seed. And then when they're looking to honor people and opportunities, someone will come to mind and it's the work you're doing. So lending hearts continues to be busy after May. It's not over, right? There's a lot more oh, to goodness. do, right? So what other no, events no. are coming up after that? We're, we're always busy. We um, it, It's a wonderful time. I was uh, just talking with the Pittsburgh Pirates. We have some wonderful things coming up with our families that we're going to be doing with them uh, from our own, um, I guess, organizational standpoint. You know, you've got to have a golf outing. I, I don't know. There seems to be some unwritten rule somewhere. <laughs> so, 
so in the fall, we're, we're, we're nonstop, whether it's events with the families, events for the organization in support of the organization, uh, you name it, we, we keep going. And it's, it's wonderful. It's such a, uh, it's a gift to me. I mean, uh, this, this came about because I needed to give back for all the blessings bestowed upon my family. But, uh, you know, what I have received is, is just insane because, uh, uh, every family. Every Back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. I'm first excited to welcome my co-host, Damon Cowboy 347 Harper. Damon, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guests. You're going to introduce them because when you talk about music, you're a man, fan of music and all these different things. And it's really intriguing what these guys are doing. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm super honored to share space with uh, brother Russell and brother D Brown um, of Zupanova. Um, I, I feel like they are cornerstones of the LA scene uh, right. with some of the sweat equity they've invested in the industry and uh, on the media giants platform. This is huge. Yes, Lord. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for ha thank having you. us. I appreciate, appreciate that. It. Thank you for having us, you guys. <laughs> how did it all start? You guys? Yeah. So how did it all start for you guys? Kind of give us a story. Uh, it's um it's just interesting. Uh, we both have two unique stories of how uh, we were just came into music and um, basically how we were introduced by someone that was a family member to him and someone that was a best friend to me. And the moment we were put together, that supernova just happened. And so um, you know, it's uh, a, a long um story that probably could take the whole show but <laughs> to to uh to break it down in short terms um you know we just kind of uh, connected through a mutual uh friend of ours or a family member to Davey and he saw he saw he recognized the talent and he brought us to, to together basically in some way wow yeah so, you know, sometimes it's just that that story about um, uh, that friend that that's always saying, oh, you got to meet that that my cousin. You got to meet my cousin. You always have that that's friend that's always trying to pair you with somebody. You got to meet my cousin. And it's just weeks and months go by. And finally, that opportunity happened where we're in a studio session. It's like, remember that cousin you were telling me about? Why don't you bring him on through? And he right. brought him on through and it happened to be Davey Brown. And it's just the magic happened instantly. All right, all right. Uh, Neil, you don't mind if I, if I dive on. right in? Go uh, ahead, dive in. A, go, go, go. It's a blessing, man. Um, yeah, man, I, I want to get the juices flowing. Yeah, um, yeah. Bro brother, I'm going to start with Brother Rossell. Uh, I, I, I've caught, I've caught, um, I've caught some of your work growing up um, just off oh. of the, the Fergie story off of VH1 a long time ago. But wow. there's this, there's this dynamic I have to ask, like, you know, having having the the hits that you guys have 
um, you know, allowing yourselves to be in top 40 right now. You got one that's, you know, 38. You got one that's 41 on um, the iHeartMedia. And, you know, I saw a segment from Jermaine Dupree. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come a little different with, with my question. And he said how he ran into Babyface um, a long time ago. And because uh, I think he had a hit from Criss Cross. And uh, Babyface said, man, um, you know, he basically belittled J Jermaine Dupree's sweat equity in the, in the track, but he made Jermaine Dupree feel like he did nothing. And Jermaine Dupree said that, uh, you know, you know, man, it was then I realized that I can't just do it one time. I have to continuously do this thing. So because of that fact, right, um, as artists, as producers, as writers, right, um, does, does, is there like this sense of like, man, underappreciation of your sweat equity because you have to get something done and move on to the next, right? Uh, or because Brasel, right, uh, coming back to the point, of why I wanted to start this this phenomenal dialogue, because of the fact that you introduced Fergie to 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 Black Eyed Peas, right? The fact that you've done some production work, the fact that you you've done some writing, right? Is there this sense of like being present? There's this sense of like being more rooted in gratitude, right? Because you had kind of like a different introduction into the music game. Yes, Lord. <laughs> wow, um, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's, that's a good question, right? There. <laughs> um, it's kind of like being a fortunate to see your own friends, uh, deal with the kind of ups and downs and the challenges that they went through in the industry. Right. And so, um, you know, it was tough for them. You, you know, people just saw them blow up and the glitz and glamour, but there was more to their story that a lot of people don't realize they had to fight and they had issues with the label. They had issues with themselves and, all that kind of stuff to get to where they are. And, but the thing is, I think that we all kind of were, um, as a group of us, we're always inspired to, there's that a, a certain thing, I think in, especially with hip hop, where there's a, a like a, a competitiveness. And so we would always try to impress each other and outdo each other. And right. so that kind of um, thing, I think you kind of, as a habit that, that um that makes you keep on going where it's like we're all about that ambition and all about trying to grow and progress and and see what we can do creatively and do things that we haven't done before especially and so with music has been able to uh, me and Davey we strive to continue to do things that we just haven't done before and uh whether it's musically creatively or traveling going to a different place that we haven't been before or um just just you know i think to to not get bored to know and just that this has just been uh in our soul just to do music yeah. whether whether um you know i don't know it's just something that we just don't stop it's just in us this that ambition and so beyond just being around people that influence you and that are always staying creative we kind of uh see that create we see that kind of like inspiration out in the world that that makes us to continue to write and and Davey is always constantly coming up with different um music and he's like here let's listen to this and this and so it's just I think that support of just having good people around you that that keep you going and keep you um as having ideas and having visions to keep um 
to keep motivated, I guess, in some way. So, yes, you know, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, Davey, how much did you learn from Russell working with him for these years and kind of getting this together and his experience? From- uh, um, an unmeasurable, invaluable amount. I mean, I, I think we kind of play off of each other so well that it just even from day one, it just came too easy. And so it was kind of like a no brainer right off the bat of just the way we kind of bounced off of each other. And um, Back to the Neil Haley show. My guest again is Gary Serac, and we're going to talk about specifically enough. His book is one of the things, How to Retire and Not Die. But we're going to talk about unique retirement uh, as you talk about wish list. And it's it's such instead of a bucket list, a wish list that they've come up with a unique wish lists. And it's the thing, it's the key thing that you do when you work with your retirees all the time or close to retirees, create a wish list because guess what? We need to have fun in life, especially in retirement where the older population is growing all the time. And if it's we still work, if that's part of it, hey, it's okay. But we have to enjoy that last quarter or even longer than that in our lives, right? With that wish list. Absolutely. I, I think that's the whole point of it, Neil. I think that's the game right there. If you can enjoy the last part of your life, um, that's what, that's as good as it gets. No doubt. Let's, so let's talk about some of these unique retirement plans or retirement fun things that people are doing in retirement. So I had a client of mine recently, I was with him and he told me he and his wife are now staying in historic hotels. I didn't even know those existed, but he said there's a whole registry of hotels all across the country. He had a big list. And he said, we did one almost by accident. We went to some town and we we're looking for a hotel. We stayed there and it turned out to be a story. He said, we had a great time. The place was cool. The people who owned it were fun. All independently owned people own these hotels, not chains. And he said it was just fantastic. So they decided they would go home and figure out a map. And about every two weeks, they go somewhere, drive somewhere and go stay in some old hotel. And... He said, it's amazing how these hotels are kept up, the owners, the the conversations, the other people in the hotel. He said, it becomes a social circle. And then he found out there are people doing this all over. And he was just one of them. People do this as their hobby or their retirement. And that's what their goal is, to go see all these historic hotels. It's pretty interesting. The one thing he did say is he said, I will tell you one thing. He said, when I started doing this, I had no belief in ghosts. I now firmly believe in ghosts. He said, there's no way these hotels are very interesting. So Uh, that's that's awesome, because that's something that every time we do an experience in life, we'll never forget that experience, especially if it's amazing compared to buying something and then we never use it ever. You know, totally. And and he was so funny because he has a neat little car they drive around. They have fun driving their car. 
And he said, Gary, he said, it's just, and we're doing weekend trips. And, and he said, it's not real expensive. These hotels are not big bucks. And he said, and the food's good. And he's just, it's a blast. So another one of my clients, this one's cool, Neil, this guy played baseball when he was a kid and he always loved baseball. And he had seen all these things people were doing. They're going to every major league park. Well, he and his wife talked about it and they're not financially that well off to go pull off flying to, you know, Seattle to see the baseball team. That just doesn't work for them. So they said, let's just do something different. So they're going to every minor league park that the Cleveland Guardians franchise plays in. And they started with the lowest level of baseball and they're working their way across the country. And he said, the baseball stadiums are really cool. The people are nice. There's, you know, maybe a thousand fans, 500 fans. He said, some nights there's a couple of thousand. The entertainment's always good. And they're always bringing somebody in doing something interesting, some contest. And he said, they're having a blast. And it doesn't cost much. He said, you know, hot dogs, two bucks, a beer's three. He said, it's crazy. And some night they have beer nights where, you know, it's a buck of beer. He said, it's just really fun. So they've been doing that, knocking off minor league parks. And I said, well, what happens when you go through the gardens? He said, oh, we're going to go to the next franchise over this, you know, Pittsburgh, Detroit. We're just going to keep doing this. And just until we run out of uh, time. I said, how long do you think it'll take? He said, oh, years. I said, cool. And that's just fun. Wow. I mean, the, this is stuff we wanted to do. Like, we would love to go to all the Major League Baseball parks, wouldn't we, Gary? We would love to go to all the NBA. We would love just to have a full-time job just to go in and watch sports. I mean, every, especially when we were at a certain age, before we went and became entrepreneurs, that that would be the greatest thing in the world. So I equate a lot of this to, I, I think the movie was Cocoon. If we could literally take the level of what Cocoon was when they were looking at old people a lot differently than they do today yes. and see you could have these experiences and feel young like you were in your teens and experience all the things you wish you could experience as a teen, put that together in a wish list. Absolutely, Neil. And that's the value of that wish list in that book. So both of these people, when they read the book, they were doing their wish list. And that was one of the items on their wish list. And they said, well, we could go to this, we could do that. And it became prevalent that that was what they really wanted to do. And so they moved that to the top. And so it, it's kind of neat. That wish list is so critical, though. My clients that have one are so much happier than the ones that don't. And the ones that don't, don't know what they're going to do. And the ones that do have a great time. I'll give you a great program. United Way, I just was their featured speaker a couple of weeks ago. They have a program called Take Five. And what they do is they take retirees, Neil, that were pre-retirement and just newly retired, and they drive them around to nonprofits. They rent a bus and they basically take them in, introduce them to the nonprofit, they speak. And the whole point of it is to give each nonprofit one hour a month or five hours. That's the take five thing. So take five of hours of your life and donate it to these nonprofits. There were... Only nine people in this class, first class had 12, nine, all nine signed up with nine profits. And all of them went way more than five hours. And they went on this whole tour. So they did a, a three week thing where they come for a, a session, then they tour. And then they, it was really, a, really interesting to see how, how much they engaged with each other. They became friends, but they also got into this nonprofit thing and helping people out. Smart people didn't know what to do. I've done two classes now, and the first class, the letters and the comments were fantastic. 
The new one's too new yet, but I'm really looking forward to it, what they did and how they used it. They all got copies of the book. So that was fun. And a couple of them said, oh, we have some friends retiring. We need to get this book for them. I said, well, you also need to get them in this class. And they said, yeah, good idea. So It's amazing what your book brings out. I'm already thinking a wish list, but I want it to happen now. Sorry, Gary. I'm 50 and I want it to happen now. And that's because I've created the business that I can do these things. I'm in the process to be able to start to cover all the major events and be able to do it in a way that I can cover my costs because I could get right now in media for the NBA, NCAA. Back to Neil Haley's show, and I'm excited first to welcome my co-host Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series. Paul, how are you, man? I know you're excited about our guest. I'm good. Yeah, I'm excited about uh, about talking to you, Allie. Yes. So our guest so today is Allie Colleen, country music star. How are you, Allie? Thanks for stopping by. And let's talk about first of all, did you always want to be a musician? Was that something growing up as a singer? Is that something you wanted to do? Always. Yeah. I don't. I don't think anything else really crossed my mind. Um, in the sense of like, I love animals. If I had a plan B, we'd go with animals, but it's always been music. And so growing up in Oklahoma, is that something you says always been music? When is, who were the musicians you were listening to? My, my whole, my whole relationship with music has always been pretty isolated. It's always been me and music, you know, in the back of my, um, closet or by the time I was 16 and I could drive it was just me in the car you know what I mean but for a very long time it was just me and music um it was just me and writing and um I started writing when I was like eight or nine I, I loved writing like jingles and songs and stuff like that but I think it like really came together for me probably like 14 or 15 when I started playing guitar you know and then you have a whole song to show somebody opposed to like you want to listen to me sing watch this so that was really cool. Um, just getting to grow up like with a guitar, like as my friend and like kind of do it in that way. So all of that to say, there's a lot of people that I look up to in music. Um, but the sound and what I write about and all that kind of stuff always was just kind of a little personal thing for me. You're creating it yourself, coming up with your own creativity. It sounds like that. <laughs> it's weird to word it like that because then, then you sound cooler than you are. I was just trying things and then I enjoyed what stuck. So. So what musicians do you like growing up? Did you watch and listen to growing up? Um, country music wasn't something that I was around a lot, a lot, which I think always kind of surprises people, but there were those staple voices in my house, a lot of like Rennie Travis. And I'm a huge Jody Messina fan. I love Jody and like Jamie O'Neill growing up. Those are kind of my girls that I loved so much. I just loved what they chose to write about. Um, and then since I was probably 14 or 15, I've been a huge Cody Johnson fan. Um, he's always done the Kojo thing. And so we've always done the Alco thing. So took that from Cody. Absolutely love what he does. Um, but I'm a big pop kid. You know, I grew up, I was maybe 12 or 13 when like Christina Aguilera's like Genie in a Bottle album came out and Kelly Clarkson on Idol and like all of that kind of stuff. So I was a big powerhouse female vocalist, like 
kid growing up. That's what I listened to. Country music has changed so much, right? In this yeah. process, it's not, there's not one type of country music. There's multiple. And, mm-hmm. and what, what do you think you were, what type of country music do you think you have? Like, what man, we want to do all of them, you know, and across all genres too. I think that's a really tough thing for artists my age that grew up on playlists. It's like, we have to pick a sound. What are you talking about? So I love country music for the narratives. You know, country music is that genre that gets to tell stories and you get to paint those characters in your head on what they looked like. Like I could tell you what every character and don't take the girl looked like, you know what I mean? And like those kinds of things. So I cling to that side of country music, you know, those narratives that make people feel seen and, and really give you something to kind of watch as well as listen. Um, And then on the other side, we really love rock country. Like that's been something that's actually been really receptive of me, which I was very surprised by. But we have this song called Halos and Horns that we put out last May. And that's kind of put us into this other little subcategory that we've also really, really enjoyed. And is like very, very fun for me. Paul, can you tell me some of the country music you like, Paul? Do you like country music? Well, having grown up in the 60s, I'm sorry to tell you that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I am. I was not exposed to a lot of um, country music, so I, I it never kind of hung on with me. But but uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up with uh, with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and, and Santana and, and those guys, and and uh, they kind of stuck with me forever, you know. And um, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I'm only recently uh, kind of started listening to some music, but I can't tell you who sings it or anything like that. But, but I am excited to hear your music, uh, Allie. I I would like to know where to find it. And, and, uh, and uh, I I would very much enjoy listening to it. Absolutely. We have kind of a little bit of everything out, um, which has been really fun. I know um, today we were going to talk about Honest Man and Tattoos and those songs are completely different from each other. So all of my music's on Spotify or Amazon or YouTube, any of that kind of stuff that you would listen to music on. Um, and so you can find it. Um, and I'm sure all artists are like this, but just don't, don't pick one song. Just do me a favor. Listen to at least three, just listen to at least three. Okay. Cause they're all so different. They're all so different. Um, but they're all about something that we really care about. And Great. you're de- definitely seeing specifically enough in that process of your music. You're right the more they listen to more songs that helps the algorithm, right? For you for Spotify and different places like that. Playlists. Absolutely helps the algorithm. It, it, it helps. It helps the algorithm a lot. It also just, I know for us, when we look at like our live set going on the road, we look at the streams, you know, and we look at who's listening to what the most and like, what are they going to expect when they come to a live show? Um, and we try and we do a good job at that. Um, and that kind of thing. So I, I really like to, figure out what the listeners like the most from me. But with that said, I've just doing this as long as I've done it. And for as short as I've done it, I've, I've learned that like my morale and my happiness on stage is going to be the best show. So as much as I like to say, we really try and cater to you guys. I do what I want on that stage and I have a blast. No, you definitely, it seems like you have a blast at what you do and your vocals are amazing. I was listening, just jumping right into your website and you hit me. So how do you have such great vocal? How did you build your vocals to have that sound? I could just feel it when. Man, I have put aside like, and I didn't even do it intentionally. Just looking back, this is what I did. And again, like music was my thing. I played sports all growing up. But other than that, I was literally 
in the back of my closet or out driving field somewhere like singing. So all of that to say, I've, I've sang probably eight to 12 hours a week since I was eight. Um, in the sense of like finding what I like to sing and how I like to sing and like what works best for me. Anyone who's like familiar with just like the gym and like how muscles work and how you can grow and tone your muscles. Like it's exactly the same thing. Um, so there's a lot of different. Really? I didn't know that. So you can, so how do you do it? So as a former professional wrestler and I was a bad guy back in the day and thank goodness you could see my vocal cords aren't busted out. Like, some yeah. of these other guys, their voices are so, <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but I screamed so much and yelled and it was fine. I don't know. I, I don't have well, you a, know, a you know when voice. like mm -hmm. You know, when you lift too heavy with improper form, you're just going to tear everything, right? And you're going to tear those muscle groups that you are not targeting at all mm -hmm. because you're, you know, you're using them for other things. It's the same thing. So in Nashville, a four hour set is standard for like the kids that go and like play on Broadway and like play the cover sets and play downtown, which I did for a couple of years, your standard sets four hours. You can take a break if you want, but your crowd's going to get up and go to the next bar. So we usually don't do that. So all that to say, it's just that repetition of doing it over and over in like a controlled setting. Right. So especially when you look at weightlifting and you look at those really high reps with a really low weight and like getting your form perfect, you can sing songs that are completely out of your vocal range if you feel it the right way. And for months, you're going to sound awful singing that song. You know what I mean? You're not going to hit the notes that you want to, but you're just strengthening everything that you have behind that vocal push to get to it. And it takes a long time. Like I'm talking like a year and a half, at least like to kind of sing a song. So it's not like overnight success. It's nothing like that. Um, but there are just ways to do it. I guess, long story short. It's not how I'm like, okay, it makes complete sense, but it's like, Wow. And so why do you think I didn't blow up my vocal cords? Well, I don't know what you do. When I screamed I and I was in a show wrestling. I imagine, and yelled I imagine you train like you perform, right? Yeah. So I imagine like when you're training, you're still making all the same noises, right? You're using no, all not, your a, not, we're, not we're training. Oh, no, no, no. We're just doing you wrestling holds, taking bumps. We're not doing the whole character development. That's learned in the ring every night wrestling. Now these guys are different. They're doing a lot of performance practicing in practice. We didn't, we would really just do wrestling train, stay in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the uh, Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, just enjoying the weather out here. It's beautiful. Uh, it's, I'm turning 70 today. It's a big day for me and all the kids, grandkids, everybody's singing me happy birthday. It's going to be a great, great day going out for dinner and stuff. 
Oh, that's fantastic. And you get to do a podcast, which you are all in love because you're doing what your passion is. So yeah. I'm going to, uh, I'm excited about the topic today, giving you the ability to share a screen. Do you have another PowerPoint for us, right? I'll tell you what, with today's economic uh, situation we have going right now, people are in a world of hurt because they're living paycheck to paycheck. And, and as I'll explain in here, this is some of the pro problems we have in this, uh, uh, getting ready for retirement. You know, one of the biggest things I've, I've found, it's a lack of education by properly trained, certified financial fiduciaries. Now, there's many advisors out there, but a lot of them only do stocks and bonds. You get paid a fee whether or not. And I used to do that, but I, I stopped being a restaurant investment advisor because I have a conflict of interest. Right? I don't like to charge people a fee. If so I have a team of specialists I work with. If somebody wants a stock portfolio, then I give them to that part of my team. But it's time to think outside the box of conventional financial planning because fees will decimate your retirement, Neil. I mean, a 1% fee in a 30-year period, is uh, it'll re reduce your income by one-third. And the average fee for a 401k is 2.99%. These people in 401ks are going to lose half of their income in retirement. And here's the old adage of a, an advice of, the 4% distribution rate. They used to say, well, it's at a 90% chance of lasting until age 90. Well, that's a 25 to 30% chance of failure. Now that distribution rate is down to 2.8%. And I know when my clients run out of money at 80, my plans go to age 120, especially with increasing income. Do you realize if you're married at age 65, there is a 50% chance of one of you living past age 90 and a 25% of one of you living past 95? Wow. Now, this is absolutely huge. People need to understand this. My plans have the following advantages. The stock portfolio cannot even come close to matching. Can be tax deductible in certain cases. Qualified plans are, but a stock portfolio by itself does not. Gross qualified plans do, but a stock portfolio sure doesn't. Distributions are tax-free, and this is monumental, monumental because taxes will be rising in the future. And this is a report put out last fall that if taxes aren't raised by 66% overall, on the $31 trillion deficit we had last fall, now it's even more than that, they can't even pay the interest on the debt and the company will go into default. And there's gonna be some big changes in the stock market if they don't uh, approve that uh, debt ceiling either. But a Roth 401k or a Roth IRA can, but the stock portfolio does not grow tax-deferred or tax-free. This is absolutely huge, too. It does not affect taxation of Social Security or the means testing for Medicare Part B, which would be thousands of dollars per year. Your Roth product can do this, but a stock portfolio can't do this. It provides you tax-free long-term care options with probably, possibly hundreds of thousands and or millions of dollars more than a, a qualified plan or a stock portfolio, because you're paying pennies on the dollar for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in benefits when you have life insurance products. Taxes, 459 and a half. You can't do that with a tax qualified plan. Uh, and if you do, it's a 10%. Now you can't access your, your stock portfolio, but a qualified plan is a 10% penalty. And of course you're gonna have all the taxes and you're protected from probate. Qualified plans might, but a stock portfolio can't, as far as I know. 
And probate, if people don't understand this, is a lawsuit that's initiated by you that you're going to pay for and you're going to lose. And one of the things I tell people, you've got to have a plan of retirement. And I don't know if people remember Joe Robbie and Joe Robbie Stadium and the Miami Dolphins back in the 1970s, but he didn't have a plan. And when he passed away, he was worth 400 something million dollars. But his family got next to nothing, Neil, because the government took control of his assets. It was in probate, and they sold all his assets to pay the taxes on his estate. And then whatever's left goes to the family. And I know you've, a lot of people remember Prince the Entertainer, same situation. His beneficiaries will probably get 15 to 20% of that estate because it's in probate. And what's really criminal about this, attorneys are going to get 6 to 12% of, the, of that estate for legal fees. You're protected from lawsuits, liens, and judgments. This is absolutely huge for business owners and doctors. You can't get that with a And here's the number one tip fear in retirement, okay? Running out of money. Excuse me, having guaranteed in for guaranteed income for life. A stock portfolio cannot do that. A qualified plan cannot do that. But life insurance can, life insurance products. Protected from the volatility of the stock market because Neil, you know, we're not we're not involved in the stock market. Okay. We use indexing strategies to get to grow our cash value. Eliminates the falling risk in retirement. Number one is sequence returns risk. If people don't understand this, I'm probably their financial planners never told them about that because they want to keep their money in that in that portfolio so they get paid a fee. And they tell well, they tell, tell their clients, well, it's going to go down, but it always comes back. Well, in retirement, you know, we can't afford to have a loss when we're taking distributions out of our out of our uh, 401k. And it also eliminates the number one risk in retirement. Running out of money before you run out of life. A qualified plan and a stock portfolio cannot even come close to doing this. And this is absolutely huge. This is called, you know, I've always told you, Neil, it's not about return of investment on retirement. It's about distribution of assets. And the older you get, the higher the distribution rate. Let's say that you're 65 years old and you've got a million dollars in a stock portfolio at a 4% distribution rate. That's $40,000 a year, correct? Right. Well, you only need approximately $650,000 in certain fixed index annuities that I sponsored to give you the same $40,000, and that's guaranteed for life. And if it's a 50%, excuse me, if it's a uh, 3% distribution rate, I'd only need $500,000 of that stock portfolio. That's another $500,000 that you can do whatever you want with, pay the taxes on it, make it rough, buy a single premium life insurance, protect your family. <laughs> Back to the Neil Haley Show, and my guest again is the co-founder of Fabulingua, uh, Leslie Amana Begert. Leslie, thanks for stopping by. And what our topic today is a cool activity for kids to learn a new language, especially Spanish, this summer because it will keep them occupied. I'm going to say this as a parent and also as a teacher. If you are not you know, engaging them in the summer, they're not going to be ready when the school year starts. So this is a perfect time for them to download Fabulingua 
and learn a new language and be able to utilize that next year. And, and then you're also keeping them engaged to have fun, things like that. It's that time, right? Yeah, no, I mean, they they don't talk about the summer slide for for no reason. And it's not the good kind of slide that is fun. Um, so, you know, you really do want to be careful during the summer that um, kids are kept um, engaged in, uh, you know, very constructive, you know, reading and uh, math, etc. Not a ton, but enough to keep their brains kind of still recognizing, identifying, and and being able to sort of keep up with that work so that you're not really starting from way behind when the fall arrives. And, um, uh, you know, but it's hard to do that because generally speaking, that means kind of schoolwork and it's not fun. And so you're going to set yourself up for a fight with your kid, which is no fun for anyone and, and not really that constructive, um, which is why Fabulingo really is perfect for this setup because it's a game, it's fun, uh, it's based on children's stories. So you're really going to be working a lot of literacy, uh, but it's literacy in Spanish, um, which is still helpful for English. But you're also learning a new language at the same time. And it's self-paced. Uh, the kids are just driving their own interest in it because it is a game. And so you don't have to be there being kind of the the, the taskmaster. You just have to make sure that they have that available you know, however often you decide is is relevant, you know, once a day is probably the most constructive in terms of language learning. Um, but then you can just step back and not really get involved and not kind of hover too much uh, and just let them do, you know, this is the, your kind of once a day thing. And, and you'll be surprised by the end of the summer, um, their ears will have started really attuning to the Spanish language. They start developing this really near native pronunciation because we have a lot of uh, voice exercises where they're imitating the narrator in the stories. Um, and they're really starting to, uh, to, to, um, to get on their journey of, of Spanish language learning. Uh, if they're already intermediate, you know, you go through the various locations in the game and you're going to find that actually, uh, we have some advanced stories in the more advanced locations that would also serve that kind of learner. So um, yeah, easy for the parents, fun for the kids, super constructive for language learning because it is based on the science of language learning on what's known as comprehensible input. So it really is the best practice approach for teaching a second language. So you kind of get it all in one, one space. You definitely get it in one space and introducing something as a game versus introducing worksheets. Oh my gosh, or workbook. Hey, here's a workbook. And especially if you're going to hit the other area. Hey, you get to play a game during study time. That's got to make kids happy, right? When you hear about how you have great stories to tell about parents that introduced Fabulingua to their lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's there's nothing like that kind of meeting of I really do think that gaming and education that really is the future of education is when people are going to start making like fully fledged games that are fun, much more so than just gamifying educational content, actually making games that are fun. Because really, what have we always done at edu as educators, like the most successful educators meet the child where the child is. And right now, this generation likes playing games, right? Um, and so meeting them where they want to be is, um, is really that kind of like, perfect combination of getting education and getting in in the way they want to receive it, that this generation wants to receive it. They totally want and, and want and have a want. 
Because when we force kids to do something or advise kids to do something, it's not fun. It's going to cause fights. But you've heard the stories from families all over or teachers introducing Fabulingua doesn't feel like work. It feels fun. And you're learning at the same time. And you're adding, you're checking another box, which is learning a foreign language. Think about yeah. this process. You're not just, okay, we're keeping them active. Keeping the brain active is so important, but mm -hmm. also yeah. we're checking the box, learn a new language. So it's something new they're learning. So you're developing them in that time of study or time that you want the kids to be occupied. That's got to feel great for them, right? Feel great for the parents and then also feel great for the kid. Totally. Because actually, you know, one of the things that that's a sort of uh, maybe a World Cup secret, if you're not, if this is not your space um, in the language learning space is not a World Cup secret, it's very well known fact is that actually learning a second language has really profound effects on the structure of the brain. Uh, kids that learn a second language have more gray matter, more white matter, they literally have more brain cells. So they end up being smarter, having better memory. Uh, and long term, they actually, it helps with aging of the brain, as in you age, your brain age, ages better. Um, but also, there's just so many effects that have been shown on social emotional intel intelligence, on executive functioning, on attention and focus. So all of these things are things that as educators, and as parents, we're really aware that we want to get the executive functioning part of the child's brain really ramped up because that really helps them, you know, make plans, execute to plans and administer their lives. And one hack for that is language learning. And so if you look at all of the benefits of on the brain, the very re well researched and documented benefits on the human brain of learning a second language, uh, you'd want to have your kid learn a second language just for that. The fact that then it can then communicate with people from different cultures and stuff, that's like a massive bonus on top. So really from no perspective, this is a bad idea. And, um, you know, typically you don't really get parents that are like, no, I don't want my kid to learn a second language. Actually, most parents would like that, but they just think it's really hard. So they don't want to embark on a hard, long road. But this is where Fabulingua comes in because it's not hard. It's really as simple as, you know, just making sure that your kid has you know, 20 minutes a day available to play this game. And then you can just check out, you don't have to get involved in the, the management of it. Um, and you just have to make it available for them. And, you know, uh, then it's a win-win both for the brain, for the cultural aspect, um, and just keeping, as you said, these kids entertained over the, and engaged, productively engaged over the summer. Especially a lot of them are going to want to have screen time. And that's kind of often sets parents up on an edge over the summer. You kind of have this feeling of, oh, there's too much screen time, you know, especially if you live in Texas or baking hot outside. They're indoors, they're with screen time. So you're going to just feel better when part of that screen time is actually really contributing to their brain development, to their development as humans, to their development of, of their capacity to communicate with other kids in other cultures as they grow up. And that's huge. That's so important. I mean, because you're, you're doing everything as a parent, you feel good. And then, Hey, get, you're going to get a little break, especially when you're looking at the young yes. ones. Cause again, Fabulingua ranges from what ages? It ranges from two to 10. A two-year-old is going to use it very differently to a 10-year-old. A two-year-old is going to have the parent who needs to sort of set it up for them and maybe get needs to get them in the right location and open the right story. 
Um, and then kind of, okay, you're going to have, you can probably, you know, explain to them how to move from page to page. And once you've explained to them, maybe you're going to have to kind of keep an eye out on the left, but they're going to slowly get it. Whereas a 10 year old, you probably don't even need to go near it. They're so, uh, you know, conversant in, in uh, mobile games these days that most of them are just going to know exactly what to do right off the bat. Such, such a great thing. And people, it's very easy and, and supportable, right? We talked about this before, Leslie, compared to hiring an after-school tutor in the summer or, you know, having certain camps. This is something you're going to check the box. You're going to have them interactive. You're going to get some time alone by yourself to while they work independently. All those are huge things for a parent in the summer with the stress really becomes big. Saying, yeah, huge. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is definitely going to buy you some time uh, to either have a shower, make a meal, or answer your never-ending amount of emails.